HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. Hope everyone is staying safe, taking care of themselves. Uh, If you need to check in with friends or have friends check in with you, This is the time to really lean into your community to make sure that everyone is doing well, physically, mentally. It's a tough time, but we are going to get through this together. We are really excited to be sitting down with Dale Donshi of Spiller Park Coffee ATL. He talks to us about the independent coffee scene in Atlanta, the independent coffee scene and how it's being affected by the coronavirus. And then also Jesse shares us some tips on how to make a cup of coffee at home if you've never made a cup of coffee on your own. Then we're digging into the archives. We have Roddy Romero, who's showcasing his modern day Louisiana sound. It's a lot of fun and a little bit of sunshine for this gorgeous Sunday. So sit back and enjoy Snacky Tunes on heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
Dale Donche, welcome to Snacky Tunes. We are so happy for you to be taken out the time as owner of Spiller Park Coffee in Atlanta um, and sitting down with us remotely and socially distanced. Thank you so much. Very safe. Very, Very safe. safe. Um, so, you know, earlier this week, uh, Georgia finally issued statewide shelter in place advisory. Um, what has been your reaction? What have you seen in the community? Um, I, I, I think what's interesting about, uh, Kemp's final decision to, uh, do a shelter in place was that, um, I feel like for the most part, like my social group was kind of already there mm. as far as like taking the, uh, taking the, the situation in hand extremely serious and understanding that the sooner that we take it serious and that we look at it as um, the danger that it is, the sooner we can all get back to normal. Um, yes. so I guess in some aspects, it was probably more frustrating that it took him so long to do it just because, again, for, for my social groups and you know for the majority of the hospitality industry, it was already at that level. It was already at, you know, all, all red lights were blinking and emergency lights were, were, were blaring at that point. Um, especially when it comes to like just being a small business owner in general. So, so did, um, for people who may not be as familiar with what happened in Atlanta, did they shutter or advise non-essential businesses like restaurants and coffee shops and things like that to close before the um, shelter in place order? So um, our fine mayor, Keisha Bottoms, who is an amazing leader, um, she had already issued one for the city of Atlanta. Got it. And kind of had, had already started, um, kind of moving the necessary pieces to make it, uh, so that we would all kind of just stay at home or keep our distance. Mm. You know, a coffee shop and that type of culture is all about community and it is such a, a meeting place. So what has the reaction been from your customers as you've had to close the doors to the physical shop? Um, I think that what I have found, um, I guess for lack of a better word is it's inspiration. Like Hmm. I I feel, I feel inspired by their dedication to want to keep in like keeping contact and, and like we're trying really hard to be creative with our online store and we've never really, cause we're a multi roaster. We don't roast our own coffee. So selling coffee on our website was always a weird idea for us. Um, hmm. but we've been able to think outside the box and package, you know, from different roasters and kind of provide that multi-roaster kind of aspect from the coffee shop to them and let them know that with, with more honesty, I think that it's also brought out a little bit more honesty from my viewpoint about where the money actually goes when you buy something. Right. Um, especially now because, you know, I'm covering all of our healthcare benefits. Um, sure. all my baristas are collecting um, partial unemployment. So, um, I think between the the inspiration of them just wanting to keep con- keep a community alive online in a in a way, um, and you know to send through Instagram or through Twitter like just moments of memories at one of our shops or their kids wearing one of our shirts or you know fielding questions about brewing at home and all this other kind of fun things that. People don't just miss us because of our products or our toast or our coffee or our t-shirts. They just miss us. Um, mm. That's that to me is probably the most inspiring thing about having a coffee shop. So 
It sucks, you know, but I'm very thankful at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it sucks when you've um, built a place where people can connect, and then that is one of the things that has to go away, which is ironically what both people need and need to also stay away from during this time. Right, absolutely. So I want to set the scene a little bit for people who might not be familiar with um, Atlanta's coffee scene. What yeah. is what is it like? You know, what is what's the vibe? Where does it fit into the national and maybe even international coffee scene? Um, what's the coffee community like? You mentioned that you work with a bunch of different roasters. Mm-hmm. S- set set us up. If I want to get a cup of coffee in Atlanta, what am I looking for? Well, there's these uh, wonderful places called Spiller Park, which I would highly recommend. <laughs> um, no, no bias, I, no bias no on bias. that place. No bias at all. I, I'm, I am just a truth machine. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I think, I think what's fun about the Atlanta coffee scene is that it is very different from most major cities. Um, you know, when I think about coffee in New York, I think about tons of walking traffic, and I, I think about this like, like kind of like the speed and like this like uh, almost like a hustle and bustle kind of, of, of coffee. And then when I think of LA, I think about these like kind of really elaborate setups and like mm-hmm. very creative and intricate spaces. Sure. Um, and then when I think about Chicago, I just think about like this hardcore cold, like working mentality, give me the big cup of coffee. Um, right. And, and even to, to like Portland coffee, which is like, you know, very like, you know, lack of a better word. It's very like, you know, it's like, like that sexy kind of coffee sure. <laughs> um like coffee's a lifestyle it's an yeah, extension yeah. of who i am yeah 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 um to where atlanta it's it's almost like a weird bizarre fusion of all of that because hmm. it's we we don't have a lot of walking traffic right because atlanta is very sprawled out mm-hmm. uh, and our visual viewpoints are very southern and so but there's like this demand for speed. So you get like this very unique, casual, almost more comfortable pub feel out of most of your coffee shops here. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the dedication to to finding something that you can't get from a local roaster, I think, is very unique um, to Atlanta. Because um, for the longest time, we didn't really have a ton of local roasters. Um, so you have like your counterculture shops or you have what is now, you know, your East pole shops, which is a local roaster and they're great, um, to like awesome coffee companies like portrait who are coming out of nowhere and setting the stage on fire with like this new narrative about, um, people of color owning coffee shops and coffee businesses. Right. And it's becoming like this really cool conversation about what we all represent and what our coffee industry is to us. Um, which I think is what lacked in Atlanta for a long time, but it's really coming out now is that we've kind of have found that coffee of the South kind of voice um, Hmm. where, you know, like most of us have some sort of history that is steeped in, in the, in the, in the, either the hospitality industry in Atlanta or the coffee industry in Atlanta. And I think that is what's giving it its own cool feel where like it's neighborhood driven, but if you're from out of town, you would never want to not have this in your neighborhood, you know? Right, uh, right, right. More than just like a vacation cup of coffee. It's like the coffee shop you wish was in your neighborhood. Oh, that's nice. And uh, you yourself have been involved for, what, almost two decades now in coffee? I'm getting there. Getting there. Well, 18 well, years, right? Really. <laughs> um, and so, you know, uh, what is your own personal journey to opening 
Spiller? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's a weird one. Um, so when I first started, I, um, I moved here from Richmond, Virginia. That's where I'm from. Um, I am 100% Atlanta now. Shout out. <laughs> uh, I think once you, once you've almost, once you pass the decade mark here in Atlanta, you're an official Atlanta. Like, yeah, I, I feel that way about any city. Yeah. It's just who you are now. <laughs> um, it is now on your skin and cannot come off. Um, I've even tried to move, move away here a few times and, uh, this place still calls back to me. So, um, mm. but I, I think what is unique about my coffee journey is when I moved here is when I got into coffee. So I've never known anything else other than hospitality and coffee in Atlanta. Um, and I think that my journey from big, huge commercial Starbucks to really tiny independent on the brink of ITP, which is outside the perimeter, if you're not from Atlanta, um, like coffee shop that did like $86 a day <laughs> right. to working in restaurants and like running a coffee program to consulting, to moving all the way to Australia, to work at a roastery, to owning a coffee food truck, to <laughs> um, having a, a, a cultish kind of coffee shop in Emory Village called Steady Hand, which people still wear the shirts today, which impresses the hell out of me because that was Amazing. Like almost nine years ago. Um to, you know, getting to work with, with great people and um, be inspired by uh, creatives in this town that have gone out on a limb um, and try and carry on some of that farm to table kind of aspect um, in a coffee shop. And I've always wanted to cultivate a, a unique coffee experience for Atlanta. Like even nine years ago, we were basically the only coffee shop where you could go and get a coffee roaster out of Boston named George Howell to bringing in really weird uh, roasters that were little, very, very, very little known, like four barrel out of California at the time um, to Hart and Portland and like these, these common names that are, that are around now. And uh, I'm kind of losing track now, but um, it's, it's, it's like cultivating a, a something you can't get here. I think was always my my idea. Like Atlanta is so cool on its own, but like sometimes we isolate ourselves. Like that same neighborhood kind of thing that we create. We don't. Right. It's hard to be from not here and do things here, and so you have to like almost be here, like rooted to bring other things in and be trusted with it. You know. I get it. So it's sort of. Sorry, I rambled it, off. No, no, no. It's it's perfect because. <laughs> It helps us understand that, you know, it can be insular and that's how you define your own voice. But then if people trust you to curate and bring in things that they may not know about, but then they make it their own, especially through something that's so personal like coffee, it's a really yeah. beautiful thing. And I think too, what, um, what I was trying to get at with uh, being inspired by others, it was like, we, it, it's really cool when you kind of look around one day and you realize that your coffee shop is like the industry coffee shop. Huh. Right. Like it's cool to see like the best chefs in the city drinking coffee at, at, in your, in your shop or the best bartenders or fielding questions from some of the best wine gurus in town about how to brew at home. And like it, it's just a cool feeling to know that being a barista does not mean that you're just on the outside of hospitality looking in, that you're actually an intricate part of hospitality in the industry. Cause That's I think amazing. a lot of times coffee gets pushed out a little bit because 
you know, we're, di- we're the day walkers. What do we know? <laughs> right. Right. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to talk about the importance of coffee as a daily and nightly ritual. And then also, I think some tips for brewing at home is probably what people need right now, because I'm sure some people are staring at that coffee pot that they just took out of the box because they've never, ever, ever thought of making their own cup of coffee. Uh, yes. We're gonna, yeah, we're going to have a song from the archives um, here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're talking with Dale. 
owner of Spiller Park Coffee Atlanta. You know, before the break, you're talking about how uh, coffee can sometimes be seen as a toss away in the hospitality industry because it's during the day, it's on the go. But to me, I think it's one of the biggest rituals of anyone's day that cuts through so many cultures across the globe, you know, from the Middle East to Asia to America to Mexico, like coffee's there and how people drink it is so personal. Yeah. And a big part of that um, is not just making for yourself at home, but going out into the world and getting that cup of coffee, going to your favorite spot, getting it done just right from your favorite barista. So how, how are people, you know, shifting their daily ritual and what have you noticed? Are they reaching out to you um, to get their daily dose of coffee? Um, I, I think <laughs> uh, I actually just feel this today. I have from a, a renowned coffee, uh, well, cappuccino drinker rather in our coffee shops. Um, who seems very lost right now as to how to get sure. the coffee fix that they, they desire um, to where they're like with their dial-ins of trying to get it right, have gone through like twice oh, as yeah. much coffee as a human being needs to trying to find that perfect <laughs> one. Um, it, Cause I think a lot of times like um, because you trust your coffee shop and you're so into your coffee shop, uh, you kind of take for granted how hard it is to actually have a good cup of coffee at home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and you're also kind of scared to, uh, to ask questions because um, the internet should be able to guide you into anything. Um, but you know, it, it, if you like a shop, a coffee shop in particular, it's probably because you just like some weirdo who owns its style. Sure. <laughs> um, and we're all a little different. You know, we all have, there, there's like the, you know, the gold standard, um, that it, that's out there, but for the most part, it's all of our different weird quirks and techniques. So, um, when you take it out of the box, just take a deep breath <laughs> and get on the Instagram of whatever coffee shop you love <laughs> and just shoot them a quick little message about what the hell do I do with this? That's yeah. My well, first, that's my first tip. Well, what tips? All right. Let's, let, let's break down a couple of things. Um, I have a, let's say I'm a, a drip guy. I got a yeah. basic brewer, right? You know, like office, office coffee pot. Um, yeah. What would you recommend to get a decent cup of coffee? What am I looking for? Um, so, you know, going back to the um, uh, the idea of um, you got to like it, you got to love it. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if you like it and if you like the coffee and you love the coffee at your local shop, then I would definitely start by buying the coffee from them. Big time. Um, I think one of the, one of the big things about that too is, um, there is some idea that you, if you want to support your local economy, you should only buy local coffee roasters and that's, that's fine and good. And I'm not saying don't buy from local coffee roasters, but I think um, sometimes it's missed that uh, your local economy is going to be just as great and just as booming. If you put dollars into your local coffee shop that may not buy from your local roaster, mm-hmm. um, because nine times out of 10, the coffee shop probably employs more people than the roastery. Um, so follow that lead. You know, if you love a spot, you, you are in like, let's say you just love Spiller Park for some weird reason. You're just like infatuated with it because it's so good. Um, 
then just get on their Instagram, see what they're, what they're posting about, what coffees they're using, look at their online shops, buy from what, what they have. And, you know, if their online shop doesn't have the coffee that they, they generally brew on a day-to-day basis, then go to, you know, whatever roastery you want. If you want to go to the roastery that your local coffee shop uses, that's great because you know, that supply chain matters. Um, or, you know, adventure out and dive into some of your local roasters. But I think the, if you don't like it and you're not in love with the coffee you buy, it's going to be really hard to motivate yourself to make that every day. Right. And I think that when you're working with the basic drip, that yeah. getting the beans, getting that basic coffee, 90% of the battle, and then you just got to figure out the ratios that you want as far as like half right. basket, three quarter basket, full basket, things like yeah. that. And um, uh, I'm slightly stalling now because I'm trying to look up my little, uh, I have like a little cheat sheet that I have on my iPad. For oh, no, it's fine. it's fine. So so then while you're looking up your cheat sheet, if I want to go to yeah. the next level and do like a mocha uh, or a stovetop pot, something that gets me like an espresso without having to do the giant investment of an espresso maker, because let's be honest, like, you know, money's tight now for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, they want, we want to be conscious of that. Like if I'm trying to wield something I've never made before, which is a stovetop coffee, any safety tips or, uh, assembly tips when I'm putting the water in the coffee in? Um, so I'm probably about to blow your mind real quick. I have never used a maca pot. Really? Really. I have wanted one forever and a day and I bought one one time and decided to give it as a gift instead of keeping it. And I... Still have yet to pick it back up. <laughs> Can I? I will say this: my uh, father inspired me to get one back in January of this year, and yeah. it has been a daily lifesaver. Um, All right, because it makes it's uh, on the go, no fuss, no muss. I'm sure that you probably uh, have some fancy coffee contraption at home, though. Right, right. So. Um, I mean, I guess if I want to get aspirational, and this is the time where I am going to learn to uh, brew that perfect cup of coffee, yep. do you recommend getting like a scale? Do you recommend getting filtered water? Like, if I'm Definitely like filtered water, one hundred percent, always. If you're going to skip anything, do not skip the water. Filtered water, and it doesn't have to be fancy. It it does not have to be like like a Brita or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's a simple Brita. Just you know. Hop into your local Target, go get yourself a water pitcher, um, and you know that that has like a, just a basic carbon filter on it, and you know you'll be great. Got it. But the and water is the most important. even more than the beans. Don't mess around with water. Interesting. So so no tap water. So use the filter. No okay. 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 Yeah. Um, uh, and then just and I, sorry. No, go on. Uh, Okay, so also for the water, I think that some people uh, like to like to cheat a little bit, and they think uh, ripping off of uh, the hot water tap is going to get you to where you need to go faster. Hot water is not something you want to drink. It sits in a. It just think about where it comes from, and yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You don't want your coffee tasting like that. No, tr- and trust me, we got time right now. Like we got yeah, time. Exactly to get that water heated up from a cold filtered water. So um, you, you uh, mentioned before about supporting local businesses or local roasters and things like that. Um, But coffee is a global business. You know, most beans come from the Southern hemisphere. Um, Not a lot lot of people are growing uh, local beans in, at least not in North America. So (laughs) 
um, in your work with the roasters and things like that, like what are you seeing the uh, global effects of the pandemic on the coffee supply chain um, as a whole? Yeah, um, I've actually um, one of my best friends in the entire world. He works for uh, Intelligentsia Coffee. Uh, Shout out. Uh, yeah. Hey, give me some free stuff. Um, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> um, but we've, we've had some really, when, once this all started kicking off, we had some really interesting conversations about um, that exact, that exact thing. Sure. Um, basically what's at risk right now isn't just um, the small roaster, which, you know, to be honest, could be in some serious danger if the supply chain breaks um, and whatever coffee is in the country is what's in the country because they're going to get outbid every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's also that, um, you know, the, there, there is a, a real chance that this could alter the pricing uh, index for really small farmers that are trying to do their best by like not being certified organic, but being organic and working directly with roasters and this real relationship kind of buying um, because everybody's dollar amounts are de- being depleted every day by not being open or functioning at full capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you tap, you, you, you tackle that on top of, you know, getting piled on with, you know, global um, like climate change and just dollar values changing all the time. And um, you know, your big, your big guys, like, you know, the crafts and the, and the, the, uh, the Folgers and all that, the Philip Morris's, um, which actually I think is owned by Kraft. Anyway, don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> um, they're going to buy up coffee no matter what, because their pockets are so deep. Sure. Uh, and basically that will just do all that work that was put into creating these high dollar, high, highly sought after coffees that are, you know, small held by, by farms that are not that large. Um, and they're going to just get thrown in because they need to sell it. Got um, it. Like blended. Yeah. Basically they're just going to get blended and these beautiful, wonderful specialty coffees are just going to become a standard commodity. If, you know, if the dollar, if the dollar, dollar needs to be made, you know, um, that's tough. So, yeah. I'm sorry. I said, that's tough. Yeah, it's very tough. Um, and unfortunately there's, especially with, you know, on my side of the business, there's not much more I can do. Um, basically what I'm buying right now is already in the country and I'm just hoping that I can, you know, my dollars are going towards, basically my dollars are just going towards hopefully buying a new, a new crop when, when it's ready. Um, but you know, depending on how long this gets drawn out, that it could be too late by then. Um, you know, are you going to be able to weather the storm? I know you said you're taking on a lot of financial costs, but will the CARE Act help at all? Are you able to get any stimulus? How are you doing? How are you doing? You know? <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you for asking. Um, I'm, uh, I'm doing okay. I am. Um, I am. I, I think one of the weird things about my, what is, I guess, if I can even say has prepared me for this, I don't know that anything has prepared me for this. Um, but my coffee career has never been uh, exactly um, one of riches. <laughs> fair, fair, um, fair, fair. And so I, I think uh, in, in some aspects, it's kind of um, 
made me a little bit more of a person-oriented um, frugal business owner. And so it was never about me making a ton of money. Right. So my, I, I always had, once you've been handed it, basically once you've been handed a 30 day notice and then you have to pay for a lawyer to turn into a 60 day notice, you really understand what kind of backing you need in your bank account. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, which is what happened with my steady hand coffee shop. And that was filler part. But um, so I had a little bit of a rainy day fund um, that was already kind of earmarked for not this because I never knew this would ever happen to me. <laughs> no one did. No one did. Um, so I was I was already prepared um, in some aspects for you know taking on rent payments if something weird happens and I don't make money for for a month or two, um, or taking on you know the healthcare benefits for my baristas if some disastrous weird thing happens. Um, and so, but I think what you you never ever prepare for is having zero revenue while doing it. So I think that has definitely caused a lot of a lot more stress than than anything that I could have prepared for. But um, so we're fine for now. I don't know how much longer I can really say that <laughs> without any kind of revenue outside of online sales. Um, so spillerpark.com if you're out there. Um, yeah. I mean, are you able to bring in some money with merch or online sales? Are you doing yeah. to go orders at all? Like, um, So we... We as a business kind of took a stance um, once Pont City Market closed its doors. Yeah. Um, which was, you know, the other half of my two coffee shop empire that I have. Um, <laughs> massive, massive company. Huge. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so it was, um, and where our second location is in Toko Hill is, is a fantastic neighborhood. Um, and I love it dearly. But a lot of it is are based around um, Emory students who were no longer going to school right? Um, with CDC workers who were no longer going to the CDC unless they were necessary. And if they were necessary, they probably weren't allowed to go to a coffee shop no. um, and uh, hospitals that were, you know, starting to really get inundated with cases. And so the, the neighborhood clientele kind of got a little, little thin Um and then we couldn't allow anybody to sit down, which was like one of our biggest draws because we're a come sit down, hang out with us kind of coffee shop. Sure. Um, and so for us, it was, I think, looking at it and saying, okay, we have 22 employees, 17 of these people are full time. There's not nearly enough that we could do for them to stay open. Like it's almost like more of a hindrance to us to be open and trying to figure this out when we could use the uh, partial unemployment that had been put in place, mm-hmm. um, maintain health coverage, um, try to get creative with our online sales and really stay positive and support each other the best way that we can um, by staying safe um, and, and hopefully being a part of getting all of us out of this sooner as opposed to trying to, um, trying to draw out more crowds, you know, like I, I, I have full respect for anybody who's doing curbside and delivery pickups. I, I honor them to the nth degree. They are putting in more work than I could probably ever imagine right now. Uh, probably more emotionally than physically in some cases. Yeah. It's a toll. It definitely. Um, cause we were even running into it at some point cause you get the people who thinks it's a hoax and they're asking you why you're doing this to your business, which is heart wrenching yes. in front of your baristas. Um, and so I, you know, and I, I know that's out there and I know that they're dealing with it 
every single day too. Um, and so I think it was just more of a personal decision for me. And I would never say that, you know, I think by me doing it is not saying that I'm not fighting for my business. I think I just decided to fight in a different way. Um, I think that's fair. Because uh, it's hard. It, it, this is not something anybody prepares for. But um, yeah. So anyway, uh, I'm doing okay. <laughs> um, well, look, I, I, thanks for letting me just vent there for a second. <laughs> of course. I mean, that's, that's, that's why we're here. Um, and I want to look to the future a little bit. You know, this is tough. We are in the the eye of the storm right now. Who knows how big that eye is? Um, but but it will pass. And I, I'd like to hope that there's some silver lining to all of this. So, what do you? Yeah, I think so. I think I, hope there's got to be right. There's yeah, got to be. Right? There's got to be. I mean, that's yeah. one of the beautiful things of human nature is that it's being able to persevere. Um, what do you hope to see as a silver lining with either? uh atlanta your coffee shops coffee in general or just you know you can just forget coffee and just what silver lining are you hoping for just uh on a, on a more meta level um i i had a really interesting uh conversation with my partner because i'm not in complete isolation all alone thank god <laughs> and uh and uh she um she brought up the point where like you know all these people are making bread Every time you turn around on Twitter yep. or Instagram, somebody's got some bread posts that they're doing. Guilty. Guilty as charged. Yeah. I made bagels this morning. It's fine. Um, <laughs> uh, but she she brought up the point. And she was like, I wonder if people, when this is all over, are going to walk into a place like a bakery or a coffee shop or a restaurant and look around and go, holy shit, this is actually really hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, like, Yeah. Like the, the, the amount of work and labor that these people put in is incredible. <laughs> like I can't wait to just spend more money for these people. Right. You start um, to understand that that cup of coffee and that muffin uh, is the steel. Once you yeah. try and have a couple of unrisen mounds of dough and a bitter taste of coffee in your mouth. Right. Exactly. Right. You know, yeah. you'll, you'll start to, you know, you, you don't complain much when it takes five minutes for your cup of coffee when it tastes great. <laughs> no, or that slice of sourdough bread uh, that you know. Once you look at some unrisen loaves coming out of your oven that you spent two <laughs> days on. Uh, yeah. Listen, well, Dale, I can't thank you enough. Um, if people want to look at Instagram for coffee tips or shoot you a message Absolutely. about how to make a pot at home, how can they get in touch? Um, as always, you can do the Spiller Park. Um, our Twitter and our Instagram are just at Spiller Park. Um, you can reach out to me directly. It's just my first two initials and my last name. So DB Don Shea on Instagram and Twitter, um, or feel free to email us. Um, I'll give you the generic info at Spiller Park. Um, that one goes to all of our managers and we're trying to all stay kind of active and cool. excited about brewing coffee at home and helping people out. So do not be scared to ask questions no matter how, well, maybe not too crazy, but yeah, you can be as creative as you want to at home. Uh, yeah. I've been trying to do these uh, just to keep myself busy and entertained uh, with coffee and feeling like I'm making it for people. Uh, doing these like really fun brew guides on my personal account. I love it. Uh, they're in my kitchen. The production value is terrible, but they're kind of fun. <laughs> I, I'm sure it, it's it's uh, if anything else, the pandemic has leveled the playing field when it comes to production. How about it's, that? It's very true. It's very true. Thank you. All right. Well, Dale, thank you so much. Hopefully we'll be uh, sipping cups of coffee together real soon. We have, 
Yeah, it's going to be nice. I'm going to just have one too many cups of coffee uh, as a as a promise to keep all these businesses open. Um, we have another song from the archives, and then we'll do a live performance from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. 
Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm sitting here with Justin Tockett at Dockside Studios. Justin, thank you for letting us record here today. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about the history of this place. Um, the owners, they opened it in 1989. It's a wonderful couple that live on the property. And it was sort of a uh, field of dream sort of thing. If we build it, they will come. Um, and they've made an amazing place here with really top-of-the-line equipment um, and just a wonderful environment to be creative in. And, and speaking of the if they build it, they will come, what was the – current recording music scene in when they opened it in the in the 80s and and who was playing here and, and was there small studios home studios that people have to go to new orleans or other cities or was there a place in lafayette uh, parish that they could record you know for a long time since the i guess probably the late 50s early 60s there was a studio called la louisiane that's still in business and that's where they recorded all the vintage uh, swamp pop stuff and a lot of local cajun bands so that's really kind of what was going on here at the time. Um, this place sort of early on became a bit of a blues haven. So B.B. King recorded here, Irma Thomas, so many great blues artists, and that was sort of the thing for a long time. And was that a word of mouth? Like who was first and told their friend and they told a friend? Or was there, did they put an ad in the back of a paper? Or, or how, did, how did people begin, begin to find out about this place? You know, definitely studio business in general is word of mouth business. You know, it's it's really hard to advertise something like that. So it's you're bringing in a plethora of musicians who just go back to where they're from and spread the word. Um, but I think probably the BB King record probably really put it on the map, especially for blues artists. And do you know what it was about that record that solidified it for artists was it a sound was it a feel or, or was there what was the genesis qua about the the record that really put this place on the map well the record was called blues on the bayou and i think that'll uh, do it yeah <laughs> that'll do and it. Uh, there's definitely as you know now since you've been on the property you know there's definitely a vibe not just within the studio but without you know it's i think the environment sort of seeps in to the recordings I mean, Eric and, and Roddy, uh, who recorded here, Hub City All-Stars, they talk about going out into the property. And, and for those who have not had the pleasure of being here, can you describe the surrounding? Like, wh- what is outside of these, these walls? Sure. This is uh, – the property itself is 12 acres, and it's gated. Um, it's right on the Vermilion River, so we could literally walk about 25 feet to our right and be at the riverbed. If it keeps um, raining like this, it'll just come to us. And that has happened before. We actually had a flood in here a couple of years ago. I had about a foot and a half of water. What's the, the first place. thing you saved? Uh, it was the console. For, you <laughs> okay. know, I think that was the main. <laughs> that console, it's a vintage 1976 Neve 8058, which is kind of for, 
for geeky engineers like myself, it's sort of one of the holy grail consoles. You know, they, that was the one that was featured in Sound City, right? The the Dave Grohl one. Correct. That was a Neve as well, yeah. a different model. I think it was a little bit earlier, but mm-hmm. that same Class A technology. You know, British. So you're on the river, and then what else is in the the property? There, well, the it's a uniquely. You know, I, I come from Nashville. Um, and there are so many studios, but they're all business studios where, you know, you drive yourself to work every day. And um, and this is really a location studio. So above this building we're in, there's four bedrooms and a kitchen and a bathroom. Um, and then there's also what we call the pool house, a separate building that's also more guest lodging. Mm-hmm. Three bedrooms and another kitchen and a bunch of bathrooms. And um, so... To me, what what drew me here was the unique experience of living at work. You know, you work until you get tired. You're not watching the clock so much. Um, and then you wake up and you're already at work. And this, So you sort of live your record-making experience, which I think is fairly unique. What is it about – what is unique about this place? You know, every place will say, like, oh, the drums sound the best here or the guitars are really good or, you know, they can really – you know, get the the vocals a certain way. If you had to pick one element that is captured or done above all else, what would you say that is? I don't know that I could specify one particular instrument, but sonically, there are unique spaces that you don't have in most studios. Most studios are very properly built um, booths, which we have, but then there are a couple interesting rooms. We have a a tile for for. <laughs> A tile foyer <laughs> that uh, um, that works out fantastic as a as a drum room. Um, you know, we get this great live reverb off of it. Um, there's an extra room that I generally find I use for electric guitar amps a lot, and it's a very wooden room with a stairwell. So I'm able to put a mic up the stairwell, and you just get a very interesting sound that you couldn't get somewhere else. You know, it's a very personal to the studio what's the most uh unique placement of an instrument or vocal that you did within the building to capture for a recording and who was it who let me think i like to get weird with the recording so we've we've done a bunch of things um, this is probably pretty typical amongst studios but i have recorded i've recorded uh violin in the bathroom, which I think is pretty typical because there's tile. It's just a a very live sound. Um, But we also have mic lines that run upstairs to the sleeping quarter area, and there's this very long, narrow hallway that's got an angled slope ceiling. Um, And that's, that's a pretty famous spot for guitar players to like to put their amps up there and you can like the end of the hallway and it's a again a very beautiful woody sound uh last question um everyone gets writer's block or they get stuck Mm. what advice do you give to musicians who are here to break that um i'd have to go back to the environment and just go ahead and get out of the room Go find, there's a wonderful deck that uh, overlooks the river. That's a great spot to have a cup of coffee and unwind and try to take it all in and let the inspiration start coming to you. Amazing. Well, Justin, thank you for making time for us today. Uh, We'll be right back with Roddy here live on Snacky. All right. Thank you, Greg. 
This episode is brought to you by Shaxbury Cider, who believe cider can be daring, complex, and eminently drinkable. Located in Vergennes, Vermont, Shaxbury make a broad offering of ciders, from the bright and fruity rosé to inventive, small-batch wild apple fermentation. Each fall, Shaxbury takes to the hills of Vermont to forage for the wild and forgotten fruit that make up their lost apple project. Shaxbury, producer of the first American-made Petnat cider, continues to experiment every year with limited-edition ciders designed to spotlight locally foraged fruit. To learn more, visit Shaxbury.com or follow them on Instagram at Shaxbury. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Roddy Romero, nice Hello. to meet you. Hello. Pleasure to meet you. Well, we met a couple of days ago. Yes. Yeah, but we'll say in our official capacities, in professional <laughs> roles, if you will. Today. 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 Uh, I want to do a little bit of framing for people of where we are, because in reading about your music and what you play, uh, I'll just, you know, Zydeco, Swamp Rock, Cajun music, Creole music. Can you clarify all for the uneducated? All, yeah, can you <clears throat> clarify for the uneducated masses? Well, uh, these days the description is uh, the Lafayette sound, maybe, or more of uh, what Lafayette may sound like. Uh, all of those sounds that you described is, is definitely where I come from and what uh, moves me in terms of music. Uh, it's all the sounds that I heard growing up as a kid here uh, in Lafayette. Uh, the hub city, the, the heart of Acadiana, so to speak. Um, from from Zadico, uh, El Cido's Blues and Zadico Club, growing up, going there and listening to uh, the famous Buckwheat Zadico and listening to uh, artists like Zachary Richard, more of a songwriter approach of Cajun music, Cajun rocker, and uh, and, and, and back to our great public uh, radio station, KRVS, uh, still making all of these sounds uh, each and every day and every weekend. Uh, it's a great blend. It's a great gumbo. It's, uh, it's what we sound like here. Did the sounds used to be more separated? Like you went to a place for Zydeco, you went for a place for Swamp Rock, you went for a place for blues, you went for a place for rock and roll? Did it, was it segmented uh, that way? Or yeah, did, like I think it, so. Growing up, uh, I started playing music when I was 12 years old. Um, what was your first love? <laughs> My first love for the mu- musical instrument. Uh, well, it was the French box. It was the melodeon. It was the 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 accordion. What we call it here, but it's not called an accordion. It's not an accordion. It's a a tin button box, um, much like a harmonica. It's diatonic, so it's there's no sharps or flats. You pull one note, you push it. It's two different sounds. So that was my first love. I first heard that from my grandfather. He played a handful of songs for, for us on Sunday afternoons when we'd visit the old people in the country. What songs did he play? He played, uh, he played one song. Uh, it was called Fifi Poncho, or Fifi Foncho, whatever side of the, the river you're from. Uh, <laughs> he played that song a lot, so I remember that one the most, uh, and maybe a couple of waltzes. But uh, again, it was this fascinating um, uh, orchestra in a box. It was a, it was a, it was a carnival. It was a Ferris wheel. It was all of that, that sounded like that to a five-year-old, six-year-old child, right. you know. So that, that's what drew me in first. 
And you toured around as a, I don't want to say a courting prodigy, but a, a, you could really play. Well, in those days, uh, it, I started when I was nine. Um, I started having the love, or at least my, my earliest memories were five, six years old. I had an, uh, a great uncle, uh, Nunk Black is what they called him. He was blind. He played the French box. We'll call it the French box for this program. And, uh, By its rightful name, as it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he played uh, just, you know, like the vieux the old time, that nobody, like t- today, nobody plays this way. So that's, that's like, it, it gives me the goosebumps talking about it. That's the earliest memories that I have musically in the family. And again, with my grandfather, and then uh, my father bought the French box when I was nine years old for my brother and I. My brother's 10 years uh, older than me. Two kids, one French box. Did you fight over it? Exactly. And whatever reason, because he's older and he's bigger, uh, I won. So I locked myself in the room for the next two years with the French box and vinyl records of of my parents. This was French music from the 1960s, dance hall music, like people like Belton Richard, Aldous Roger. Uh, these were this was Cajun music at a time where. It was uh, it was twin fiddles. It was steel guitar. It was lots of Bob Wills influence coming through Louisiana. So that's the records that I grew up on, and like a lightning bolt, this this young guy, and I say young, he was in his twenties or you know early thirties then, then being nineteen eighty eight or so, called Wayne Toops, and he he was from the country. He played this French box. He had a band that backed him that had a piano, that had electric guitars, that had electric bass, that had drums. And it sounded like the Allman Brothers uh, singing in French from the bayou or from the rice fields of Crowley. Uh, and that, that, that changed a path, and, and everything else has been different after that. The sounds of the bayou has changed after that. And just for quick understanding, how long has your family been in this area? Uh, well, since I was born, uh, my, my dad is from uh, the Ridge, uh, Judice area. My mother is from Rain, Louisiana, uh, a little bit further west from Lafayette. When they met, they met at a, at a bar called the OST Club, the Old, old Spanish Trail. Uh, they, they met over a dance and fell in love, and they were you know, teenagers, and people got married back then when they were teenagers. Do you think people meet that way anymore? That people meet over like a dance? I don't think they get married as teenagers, thankfully. No. Uh, but <laughs> no. there's lots of meeting at the dance halls. Yes. Still. And how did your music evolve? You, you know, you toured um, at a young age. When did guitar enter your life? When did singing enter your life? And, and who guided you onto that path? Yeah, um, I, I, for me, you know, like, like it changed with Wayne Toops, the, my... my I got out of out of the dance hall records, and then there, this was this rock and roll sound that kind of entered, but it was still fronting uh, the, the the French box was still the front of the of the show, so it, it people like Zachary Richard and and then <clears throat> I I got invited to play the Montreal Jazz Fest when I was 13 years old. How did did that How happen? How did they find I you? I have no idea. I mean, this is uh, you know I don't won't I won't tell people yeah. your age, but this was definitely pre. Internet. Yes, yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. So well, did, and you have no. I mean, I guess if you know you're, at that time. If you're the if you're the French rock prodigy. If you're the only <laughs> young kid at that time playing, you know, the old time music, then that's they're going to find you. That's how it happened. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
At least we'll talk about it yeah. in that way. So it uh, so I played that jazz fest, and then then I discovered this guy called Sonny Landreth, and he played the bottleneck slide. He lived in Lafayette. He was from Mississippi. I heard these sounds that that were that he was producing out of this bottleneck and this this Firebird Gibson guitar that I never heard in my life at that time before. My only records were you know pedal steel guitars and twin fiddles and nice smooth sound, and it was it was another voice that that uh, drew me in, intrigued me, it, it 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 pulled me, it grabbed me, it did everything that it shook my bones, and I knew at that point in my life that here's another path that well let's. Let's let's entertain this and and I want a guitar now. Do you remember how it made you feel? Sure, uh, I um, I couldn't. There's there's this one time that um, it's in Montreal. It's at the Jazz Fest. I hear this guitar down the road. It's a sound check. It's during the daytime, and again, it's it's something that I never heard. And I fi- found myself walking faster and faster and picking up speed to the stage and then seeing Sonny up on the stage and doing these things that something I never heard before it was it's like you know listening to that first Rolling Stone record or or the first Bob Dylan record or for me the first Clifton Chenier record Zadiko Cha Cha that just you know it hits you in the forehead and it says hey man this is this is something special here if you don't feel this you must be dead can we hear a song sure what are you going to play for us first? Uh, I'm going to play a song that uh, was penned by Eric Adcock, my uh, musical brother for a long, long time. And I, uh, I got the chance to arrange the song in this very studio maybe about five or six years ago for an album called Gulfstream. The song is called Gulfstream. Here we are with Roddy Romero, live from Dockside Studios on Snacky Tunes. Dad's been shucking dozens since 42 Iron tub ice down full of false staff brew Black had a son, Bobby Charles called Blue Catholic church bells told the Louisiana blues Oyster rake scraping down Grand Highway. Don't get no more salty than Barataria Bay. A hundred years my family's done it this way. Some folks call it work, but it's just another day. And in life there's always love Comes into your heart from up above Gather my dreams and put them out to sea Gulf Stream and I'm free
Politicians, trappers, priests and more They've all strolled through these double French doors I was so busy just trying to keep their glasses full Folks laughing, drinking, just shooting the bull Vermilion parish sunsets across my bow Just slipped off the edge and I don't know how I turn the key in the lock and close up shop The owl flies round the old steeple's clock And in life there's always love Comes into your heart from up above Gather my dreams and put them out to sea Gulf Stream and I'm free Neon light gently taps me on the shoulder And the ice in the glass melts under the whiskey that I pour The salt in the air from the storm off the coast As I pull from my glass and offer up this toast been a good run, it's been a good haul My nets are full, time to pull in my trawl Mes amis, ma famille, especial pour mon père Que tes filets soient pleins de fruits de mer And in life there's always love Comes into your heart from up above Gather my dreams and put them out to sea Gulf Stream and I'm free That's a bit rough. It was perfect. <laughs> you mentioned Eric uh, Adcock, who is your co-founder, brother of music of the Hub City All-Stars. Sure. Uh, formed 25 years ago. Or more. Or more. Uh, how did you two meet? Uh, how did you come to, in your musical evolution, form this band? And, and how has it stayed together for so long? Yeah, good questions. <clears throat> uh, let me start by saying we've been making music together for... Close to 30 years, maybe. Um, we met through, I think maybe my brother was introduced or another friend musician. It's very hazy. It goes so long back. 
Uh, a lot of late nights. But we, we lived <laughs> in between. <laughs> we lived in the same neighborhood, or at least uh, adjoining neighborhoods, and there weren't very many young young guys, young cats at that time playing uh, Louisiana blues or French music or Zydeco music or Cajun music at that time. So we were bound or destined or uh, it was uh, in our cards to hook up. Uh, and there, after that, we we wrote songs about playing cards and drinking and a lot of things, and you know the rest is history, as they all say. But we've made music together, uh, and we've traveled the world, and we've seen so many places, and uh, we've made some brilliant records along the way that had a few Grammy nominations and a few pats on the back, and it all feels amazing, and it all feels good, and you know. Every moment passes, and we're all getting older, and I just hope that we can continue to play music and do the same thing. Well, what's amazing about this music is that uh, it's timeless. So yeah. you, don't, you don't look at someone who's 80 playing this music and be like, ooh, you're out of place. You're, well, like, you're you almost know, like right in place. I, growing up and playing French music at the age 13, I was the only kid playing at right. that time. And every, all of the musicians that were surrounding me were older. They were... They were older people. I've always played old music. I've always played music that I felt like were my parents' music. But in my mind, in my perspective, it's all timeless, like you said. It's, it all feels like where we come from. It's all a part of us. It's our sound. We travel the world and we take it to, to other places and people feel that whatever we're feeling, you know, however you – I don't know how to describe it. It's really tough to put words to for me. But just the feeling. I mean, you're still growing into the music. Sure. You're still a young guy. I'm, I haven't played <laughs> for my peers very much. Still, it, right. we still, you know, draw an older crowd out there. The demographic that we play for is a, a bit older. Uh, they go to dances to dance. They 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 show their appreciation appreciation by dancing, you know, more than applause. What do you learn so. from playing with someone for almost three decades? How does it evolve, and, and what language do you develop, and, and how does this, this <coughs> sound continue to grow and expand from, from being and having such a consistent partner? You learn different languages, like non-communication in terms of not verbally saying something, but musically, uh, or, or an eye cue, or an elbow cue, you know, in, li- in the live setting. You learn things like that. You learn things that are, are, are more natural, um, I heard this 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 uh, podcast the other day of uh, um, Rusty and Doug Kershaw, and and when Rusty was making records, he he had this I don't know what he called it. There's a there was a uh, a term for it, but it was just like this unknown energy that if he was sitting in the same room, he can anticipate what the other musician was going to do or transfer that energy. And when you play with somebody for so long, you, you, that it either happens or it doesn't. You know, you, you're, you, you feel that energy. Uh, place factors into a lot of your music. Uh, Hub City is sure. another name for, for Lafayette. Yeah. Um, you talk about Vermilionville, Vermilionville Parish and, and Gulfstream. Right. Everyone's hometown affects their music. The, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, yeah. as you mentioned yeah. earlier, all the New York great punk bands. How does this place affect your music? And outside of the cultural heritage that comes from the music you listen to, what is it about this place that seeps into the music that you're making and writing? Well, if if you grow up, uh, waking up, 
first thing and you smell a roux on the stove, that is going to change your day. That's going to change your outlook on life and how you uh, present yourself to the world. When you, that's the first thing that you smell and coffee grounds brewing. <clears throat> I feel like we, how, what we want to write about is, is very, it's plentiful here. It's, uh, there's so many raconteurs, there's so many storytellers in, in our parts in this area. You can go down to the, to the uh, corner bar and meet all sorts of characters and, and uh, hear all sorts of stories. And so people, people want to share their knowledge, share their stories, share their bullshit, share whatever they have to share here more than most places in the world that I've been to. And... You know, sometimes it's a it's it's the beautiful, and then sometimes it's the not so beautiful. But that's life. It's everything in between. Can we hear another song? Yeah, absolutely. What are you gonna play for us? I'm gonna play a song called Majoli, and uh, I wrote this along with Michael Juan Nunez and also Eric Adcock. Uh... And it's gonna try to go like this. Thank you. 
One of the things that's clear about the music you write with Eric are the heroes that you worship, incorporate, bring in, cover, pay homage to. Uh, one, of the th- one of the things that Eric talked about was the Bobby Charles cover that's on, on Gulfstream. And he mentioned that you had been noodling around on it for years and you decided after taking a writer's block break to come <coughs> and record it for Gulfstream. I want to talk about covering your heroes because it's something that I think seems to always happen on records or live things but never really discuss how musicians actually pick that or what comes ready to it so when you begin to approach a cover what has to be in that song that speaks to you or or wants you to make it in some way your own well uh, before it starts with a song I think for me more so it's still uh, uh, where I'm from. It's still regional. It's still uh, I want to pay homage to the people that that are surround that surround me here and growing up. Uh, the guys like Clifton Chenier and the old guys, and I know it's it's like it's passing on the legacy of our music. Whether I'm interpreting that song. Uh, note for note or adjusting it to 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 fit my perspective or to what is comfortable in in the realm of my musicality as you know as a musician so uh, when it be, when it becomes the focus to the song itself the story uh yeah i really i have to feel a part of it i have to feel something i have to feel Empathy for the character that's singing it. I have to 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 really dive in, or I'm just covering a song. It's not going to translate the same emotion if if I don't pour everything that I have into that. Uh, when I recorded, I hope I've been noodling with the song for a while. It was such a beautiful song. It didn't mean anything until my life was falling apart in divorce and then it it you know the song took a new meaning it took a, a new turn uh and 
it still takes new turns. I, I, I sing it now still in performance settings, but it doesn't. But I don't have the same emotions that I did once we laid the song down in the studio here in at Dockside. You know, three, four, or five years ago by now. When you say new to the ground for a while, how, how long is a while? Uh, well, yeah, I take time. A, a while could be a year. A while could be a couple of years. It, it could be 10 years. It took so long for us to record the record previous to Gulfstream uh, uh, over a 10-year span just for the sake of, I don't know, life happens and life gets in the middle and in the way sometimes. But um, I, I tend to lay down material, lay down record material, and then sit on it for a bit and then, you know, try to to get a new fresh set of ears, a fresh, uh, uh, again, a perspective on, on what this should sound like that I'm making. And then most of the time I drive myself crazy with going back and listening and, oh, that could be better and this could be better and you know, today here at Dockside, that's kind of one of those days where I felt like I came here to sing some songs, re-sing some songs, and, you know, I have to be convinced by this amazing uh, engineer, producer, Justin Dockett, that, you know, that sounds really good. So, you know, every do, artist does that, I'm sure. Do you find it harder to break your own songs or to break a cover? You know, that's, I think... That's a great question. I feel like we've broken our songs much easier than breaking covers, but damn it, those covers sound so good, and they're such great songs that I, I want to keep doing them and keep spreading, spreading them out to the world and have new listeners hear them and hear the sound of Louisiana and for people to come back here. Have any of the people you've covered been alive and commented back on what your take or your version of it? Well, uh... We had one, and I say we, Eric and I, uh, we wrote a song for Buckwheat, the late, great Buckwheat's mm -hmm. Uh it, It's an original song. It's called No Need for a Crown, and it basically talks about, you know, in the Zotico community, uh, there's lots of self-proclamation of kings, uh, and it's it's... It's a part of the it's a part of the, the the talk. It's part of the walk in the culture, and it's a beautiful thing. So, the the song that we wrote for Buckwheat is is really just saying that he's the best, and there's been no need for a crown. Anyway, he was uh, getting really sick, and uh, toward the end of his life, unfortunately, we got a chance to play him the song, and he sent nothing but good positive vibes and, and appreciation for it. And uh, so in that case, it holds a special place in our heart. Last question, two parts. Taking it back to tons. When you're in the kitchen cooking, if there is music, what are you listening to? Well, we have uh, some great Latinas in, uh, working in the kitchen and they're playing some beautiful Nortenia music on their iPhones occasionally while while they're prepping and while things are going on. Uh, we we don't have a jukebox yet, but I'm pretty sure that we're gonna put more music in tons before too long. And what is your specialty that you consider your best dish above all else? Oh, I love making sauce. I love making sauces. 
switch the proteins, it doesn't matter. I just love the process of cooking down onions and cooking down the trinity, the garlic, whatever you want to put into it. Uh, I love that process of just taking the time and, and working the heat. Amazing. Um, what's coming up next? Tours, more recordings? More tours, more recordings. Uh, the Hub City All-Stars, we have a few big gigs here this year coming up already. I'm doing some solo things. I've got a trio that I'm working, going back to Europe later in the year, going up to Canada for the big Congrès Mondial, Acadian uh, celebrations in the summertime, so lots of things happening, yeah. Amazing. Where can people find you, find your music, find your tour dates? Um, come to Lafayette, Louisiana, and just <laughs> knock on some doors and ask for my name. <laughs> no, RoddyRomero.com, RoddyRomeroMusic.com as well, and just search Roddy Romero. You'll, you can find something. What are you going to take us out with? Uh, I'll do one of those covers. Perfect. I was hoping you'd say that. Big thank you to Holly and Tons. Big thank you for Justin to opening up Dockside for us and letting us record this uh, special episode of Snacky Tunes today. We really appreciate it. Roddy, thank Thank you you. for for being here. Uh, We'll be back next week with uh, another episode of Snacky Tunes. Thanks for listening. Ain't no sacred holy cow Got no pretty ruby mouth To smile and charm me through No clever silver tongue To flatter people into doing What I want them to Ain't much for pushing buttons Pulling puppet strings or fussing Besides making silly rhymes I really ain't much good at nothing But my heart keeps me amused In this big world of confusion Cause I'm a dreamer Hallelujah, I'm a dreamer No blue blood touch of class No laminated pass To where the in crowd hangs No flaming rum dessert No front row seats reserved When old blue eyes sings But break it down to loving It's more than just a promise No gift to all the girls But I got the one I wanted And through any storm that blows She still loves me Yes, she knows that I'm a dreamer Hallelujah, I'm a dreamer pavement all around green meadows can't be found they will be dreamers when every cotton field is gone 
Hope my children will have grown to be dreamers. No boss to pay no mind, no turning wheels to grind, no blade of grass disturbed or sleeping baby stirred. There'll be no noise at all, just a silent voice that calls to all the dreamers. Hallelujah, I'm a dreamer. And my heart keeps me amused. Hallelujah, I'm a dreamer. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.